Please open in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. We are beginning chapter 3 in our exposition upon Mark's Gospel. Please join with me in prayer. Father, I come to Thee, weak and trembling, for the task now before me. Lord, we all come to Thy Word trembling, its power, its authority over us. Oh, but God, it is life, it is life to our souls to our hearts, our mind. May our, our affections be inflamed. May our minds be trained and edified. Our hands and our feet be swift in thy service. Without thee, O Lord, we can do nothing. Please work in our hearts through the preaching of thy word. Keep us from error. Apply thy inspired word to us, O God. Father, I pray for these hearers before me, thy children. Protect them from the evil one. Let the good seed of the word land in good soil in their hearts. Holy Spirit, increase Increase their faith. Give them power to improve the word preached and applied to them. We thank Thee, O Lord, for the opportunity to gather, to worship. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Mark chapter 3, we'll be looking at the first six verses. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Dear congregation, we have often at this church been accused of being mean-spirited, hard-hearted, harsh. John Calvin once said, when similar accusations were brought against him, especially towards the end of his life, he said, does not even a dog bark when his master is attacked? In this passage before us, we will see the heart of Christ as we have time and time again in Mark. His love, his tender mercy for sinners, and his his care for, his care for even the body, the bodies of men. He is so sweet. He is such a Savior, such a God. Any false teaching that casts him down, we must hate. We must speak harshly against it. I'm not here, nor 
are you to be nice to heretics? One, to cast them out after two admonitions. Cast them out. I see fools, many, many fools, trumpeting prosperity, reparations, racism against whites people, racism against black people, pretending there's such thing as a black church and a white church instead of Christ's church. These are fools, errant. They serve their bellies, and that's it. They're sent from Satan and exist because Satan wants them to exist. And they are here to lead astray the church of God. When you see the love and the tenderness of Christ and his power, his sacrifice for sinners, you will not stand idly by as people slander his name, who profess to be his church, who profess to be his bride. No, they are not. They are not. And in this time, we must take sides. This is no longer a game. We are in one of the most intense seasons this country has ever seen. Period. Shall we stand for Christ? Or shall we stand for republicanism? Shall we stand for Christ? Or shall we stand for racial justice? Shall we stand for Christ? Or shall we stand for being nice? That old game is over. The church was nice for a long time, and it got her nothing but a church, massive churches full of bones, and no voice, muzzled. We must love what God loves. And God loves his son, Jesus. He loves his son, Jesus, more than anything. And he has a special gift for thee. His son. He is to be relished and adored at all times and all places by us who know him and love him and have been redeemed by him. That is the best portion, dear congregation, dear Christian. It is thy portion both now and forever. Let us read Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And he, being Jesus, entered again into the synagogue. And there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they, the scribes and the Pharisees, watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway 
took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. In our text, let us notice three points. Three topics, rather. First, unbelievers, haters of God. Unbelievers, comma, haters of God. Second, Jesus, comma, worker of mercy. Jesus, worker of mercy. And third, believers, comma, responders to duty. Believers, responders to duty. First, unbelievers, haters of God. Jesus was watched with suspicion and conspiracy in this passage, as he is often throughout the New Testament, specifically the Gospels. Verse 2, it says, And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. They kept a guarding eye over him. He was watched with an evil eye. The evil man, the sinful man, desires to excuse his sin, as we saw last week. That's what legalism and antinomianism is. An excuse for sin. An encouragement to continue on in sin. The evil man desires to excuse his sin. And he will bring charges, no matter how false, against Christ to do so. We see this every day. Though there was no fault in Christ whatsoever, he was without sin, as John 19.6 and 1 Peter 2.22 say. Yet, the scribes and Pharisees watched carefully, carefully watching him to find something that they might level against him, cast against him. Luke adds, in the parallel account, that they sought to find an accusation against him. Luke 6.7 There was nothing on the surface nothing on the surface, or in reality within him, that they could accuse Christ's conduct. There was nothing that they could point at and say, look, he has sinned. So they were diligent to search out to find something which they could twist, which they could manipulate to bring against him. Notice this, dear congregation. That while men ought to be diligent, all men ought to be diligent in seeking out the many things which commend Christ to our hearts and our affections, the evil person not only neglects to see the good that is in Jesus, but labors to find supposed faults in order to cast him down. It's the duty of every man to see the good that is in God, in Christ, and yet evil, corrupt, and wicked people, sinners, not only neglect the good that is there in Christ, but even seek to create sins out of thin air. The wicked man calls evil good and good evil, as Isaiah 5 verse 20 tells us. That's our, that's our age that we live in right now. Things that are evil Wicked are called good. The recent Netflix controversy should tell you all you need to know about that. 
so wicked, so vile, I can't even speak what it is from this pulpit. If you would like in your free time, you may ask someone here or look it up yourself. Evil is called good. Good is cast down as evil. There is endless good to praise Christ for within him, within his very nature. And yet the sinful man will call all of these things evil. Let us see, dear congregation, that this is the height of wickedness. This act of finding the good things that are in Christ and calling them evil is the height of wickedness. In other places, even in this very chapter that we will get to very soon, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jews called Jesus the prince of demons even slanderously saying that Christ's works were the malevolent works of Satan rather than the works of a benevolent and loving God. There are few sins more wicked than this to say that what Jesus does is satanic. In fact, it is the one sin to say that Something Jesus does that is good and holy and upright is satanic and evil and wicked. That's the one sin that cannot ever be forgiven. Ever, Jesus says. That's in chapter 3, verse 29. So let us, dear congregation, be diligent in discovering, seeking out and discovering all the good that is in Christ, marking them down one by one, noting them. Believer, Labor to uncover all of Jesus Christ's glorious attributes, all of his gracious deeds, and store each precious gem in thy heart. Be not as so many wicked people, including the ones here in this chapter, who love to cast Christ down rather than lift him up. We should be the ones lifting him up high above all things, Lifting him high. As a jeweler takes a diamond and lifts it up towards the light and turns it to see the light refracting in every different facet of the diamond. The fire shooting out of it. So too we must do with Christ. Lift him high and demonstrate his wonderful works, his wonderful deeds to the world. The unregenerate heart, if the Holy Spirit does not work upon it, will do anything, anything to excuse its evil deeds and to accuse Christ of his good deeds, that they are evil. How many people do we know and have we heard of that upon seeing the wickedness, the evil, the greed, and the deplorability of the world around them say something like this? Well, there's far too much suffering. There's far too much evil in this world. For there to be a God. There thus cannot be a God. And if there is, he must be himself quite evil. We've heard that many times. The world's leading textual critic of the New Testament, Bart Ehrman, left the faith over that reason. Many, upon hearing about the gracious election of sinners to salvation, will state something like this God is unjust in saving sinners, He's mean to save sinners. He should allow them to choose to jump into hell. 
even more upon seeing their unfavorable circumstances in this life will say things like this. God is not good. Well, what evidence do you have for that, friend? He's very harsh and unloving. What do you mean? Explain. Well, there are many things that I want that I do not have. I would like them, and I do not have them, so God is evil. The scriptures tell us this about the heart of man. That it is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17.9 And that all men are dead in trespasses and sins and by nature are the children of wrath. Ephesians 2.1 and 3 So all men, every single person who has ever lived by nature, are born into sin. That's their natural state. In their natural state, they are haters of God, Romans 1, verse 30 says. Think of it this way. When we set Christ and his glory and his beauty and his love and tenderness and mercy over against the wickedness of the world, think of it this way, that each person who has ever lived, if they could, would have climbed up into heaven and slain God on his throne. That's their desire. Evidence for this is clearly seen in our passage. After the Pharisees had witnessed this merciful miracle performed by Christ upon the man's withered arm, they were, as Luke adds, filled with madness. Luke 6.11 They were enraged that Jesus could be so good when they were so bad. And it says that they immediately took counsel how they might destroy him. By their own traditions, they had made void the word of God as we looked at last week. It was the Sabbath day. They were now in the synagogue, the place of worship. And they taught that on the Sabbath day, no work should be done whatsoever. By their own tradition, and they're adding to God's word, it had become... It had come to be known as that. They failed to recognize that Jesus, as he just said, was Lord of the Sabbath. Astounding. Lord of the Sabbath. And as Lord, he upheld the scriptures. That the teaching of the scriptures, that acts of necessity and acts of mercy are lawful on the Sabbath. Not unlawful. The Sabbath is a day for man's good. Not a day for his exasperation or for his refraining from all things that are good and merciful. No, that is to call good evil and evil good. So, in the case here with the Pharisees and the scribes, what should have filled, what should have filled their mouths with praise to God, what should have caused thankfulness to Christ in their hearts, what should have caused awe And amazement, the seeing of this miracle, only caused them to be filled with such wicked rage that they actually began planning Jesus' murder. Truly, the unsaved man is in a desperate condition. Is he not? Now, let this encourage us to preach to hold fast to the gospel and to spread it abroad. 
that this is the desperate state of all who are unsaved. And they shall be repaid at the judgment day. All people will, either in Christ's substitutionary atonement or in their own eternal undoing. The wicked, the wicked person will join in league with anyone. Anyone. A wicked man will join in league with anyone that will serve to further their evil schemes. They don't care who it is. Just as a common good can unite men of upright hearts, so too can a common evil unite the wicked together. Previously, we see that the scribes and the Pharisees, just in our last passage last week, tried to get the disciples of John in league with them against Jesus. And now we read that straightway they took counsel with the Herodians against Jesus. Verse 6. The Herodians were their bosom foes. That's what you need to understand here. They were their enemies, most heated enemies. But now, they had a shared common sin. Namely, a hatred of Jesus Christ. This vile partnership would lead to the Jews crying out in mass against Jesus Christ on that day. His passion. Crucify him. Crucify him. That's where this evil league would take them. It would lead to their receiving of the murderous traitor Barabbas and their rejection of the good shepherd Jesus. Evil men grow more evil and they will join hands together even if they hate each other because they hate God more. Notice, dear believer, that thy Jesus was watched. He was watched. The world observed his every move to find some inconsistency and his conduct, some sin that they might accuse him with. They still do. They still do watch him. The world is constantly looking to Jesus Christ to cast sin upon his name and his conduct. And guess what? We are not above our master, dear congregation. If they hate Christ, they will hate us. If they view Jesus with suspicion and, cons- and conspiracy, they will view us with suspicion as well. Oh, how this ought to urge us to walk circumspectly, as the Bible says, before a watching, hate-filled world. Let us be upright in our conduct. Be mindful of how we present ourselves before a watching world that is seeking to castigate Jesus Christ through us, that as Satan's coming before Jehovah wish to find fault with God himself and his Job's. Moreover, dear congregation, if you have been regenerate, if you are saved, if you truly be in Christ Jesus, then be thankful to God that you are not as these unbelievers around us or the unbelievers here in our passage. 
Those unbelievers who, when they look at Jesus, only find more and more reasons to hate him. Though there is no cause within Christ himself, obviously. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, the case is different. Is it not? You have been brought from death into life. From haters of God to lovers of God. From God's enemies into God's children. So much for the first point. Secondly, Jesus, worker of mercy. We see this in verse 1. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And then in verses 3 through 5a. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. Let us notice Christ's love for pitiful sinners demonstrated here. Upon entering the synagogue, this is after they're going through the wheat fields, and his disciples are rubbing the grains of wheat in their hands and eating. After that scene, he enters into a synagogue with his disciples, and they find a man who had a withered hand, his arm either from a birth defect or some injury was now withered and stiff and useless. It was unusable. This likely led the man to be either hindered in his ability to work and provide for himself or unable to work at all for his living. This was a pitiful state to be in indeed. Notice, the man was where? In the synagogue. What's noteworthy about that? Well, it is often the case that those who are most afflicted physically in this life are the most aware of their spiritual needs and poverty. The luster and comfort of the world has evaded them entirely, and thus they can more easily set their eyes upon spiritual things. Our trials, dear congregation, always make us more aware of our need of Christ. That's why we should kiss the rose and feel the thorn. As the psalmist says in Psalm 86, verse 7, In the day of my trouble, I will call upon thee. Our trouble draws us to God. It was only through the affliction of his thorn that the Apostle Paul learned to say this, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. Dear congregation, let us labor and be careful, therefore, to turn every cross which is placed upon our backs by Jesus into Ebenezer's of dependence upon God. Jesus tells the crippled man to what? Stand forth. Stand forth. Come stand in the midst, literally. The man was to be a public display of Christ's mercy. Public display. It was likely that Jesus saw that the man was a man of faith, for he rarely heals in the Gospels when there's no faith. 
It's likely that he saw that he was a man of faith, devoted to God, being so often in the places of worship. We must learn this, that Jesus loves, he loves to make public displays of his glorious grace towards sinners. The Sermon on the Mount is full of expressions like this. What we do in secret, God will reward upon us openly. He loves to make public displays of his love towards sinners. Jesus was crucified publicly even. He spoiled principalities and powers, that is the powers of man and the powers of hell, and made a show of them openly upon the cross, Colossians 2, 15. He did this publicly. We now stand as a light upon a hill as Christians, publicly. We were all spiritually withered and crippled by sin, were we not? And Christ had us all stand before him in the midst. Stand forth, he said to each one of us at our salvation. Publicly, before the angels in heaven, the hosts of heaven, who would rejoice at our repentance and faith, our salvation. The angels rejoice in the grace of God in Christ Jesus towards sinners. And so should we, whether it be our own salvation constantly and also the salvation of others. You have more than a dozen people to rejoice over here in this room. When was the last time you just sat and thanked God and rejoiced in God and praised him for one of these members' salvations? Just spent a day thinking about that, that one of us could be saved and thanking God for it. The angels do so. They praise God. They shower eternal and constant praise upon Jehovah God for saving sinners. All men should stand in awe of his mercy towards sinful creatures. But many there be that find Christ's grace a cause for resentment rather than joy. Notice next Christ's defense of his mercy. Matthew, in a parallel passage, states that it was the Pharisees who asked the question, not Jesus. The Pharisees asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days? Well, this passage tells us that Jesus asked it. So they both asked it. They did this to entrap him. They asked this question of Jesus to entrap him. It is likely that they asked him and then he asked it back to them. You tell me, is it lawful? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Verse 4. The answer should be obvious. But to the sinful man, the good work here done was only a cause for a fence. They wished to find fault in him. They desired to prove that he had sinned by breaking their man-made traditions. That was their goal. In adding to the law, they had destroyed the very intent of the law, namely man's good and benefit. Luke adds this, that Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew their intentions, that their intentions were evil. The Pharisees asked so that they might be excused in their sin and entrap him. 
Matthew adds that Jesus then gave them a real-life illustration, as Jesus loves to do. He says this, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall, if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. So with this, we read that the Pharisees held their peace. Jesus says this to them, and then they hold their peace, meaning they were silent. They had nothing to say back. They had no answer to Christ's word. The sword of the Spirit prevailed again. It was obvious that, it was, that if it was good to be merciful to an animal on the Sabbath day, that it was far better to be merciful towards man on the Sabbath day. To do good and not to do evil. To not neglect those in need. Their argument basically was this. That there's six other days upon which this man could have been healed. There's six other days. He's, he's been waiting his whole life. With this withered hand. What's one more day? Can it be done tomorrow? Our tradition says no on this day. Why the rush? Why the rush? Can it not wait till tomorrow? But Christ here demonstrates for us that there is no better day on which to do such works of mercy than the Sabbath day. Dear congregation, we too must value and uplift Whatever is glorifying to God's mercy on the Sabbath day. Whatever is glorifying to God's mercy on the Sabbath day. And especially the works of religious duty. For a minister, such as myself, the Lord's day is a day of labor. But what marvelous labor it is. Edward Payson, an early Congregationalist in America around the time of the American Revolution, used to sit in his study and just clap his hands for joy that he had been called to be a minister of the gospel. Oh, what a wondrous calling, he would say, that I should be called to be an ambassador of Christ Jesus. So on the Lord's Day, a minister labors. But it is marvelous labor. But... As we said last week, for you also, this is not a day of inactivity, but activity, religious activity. It's religious labor that you are called to on the Sabbath day. You must labor in hearing and improving God's word, applying it to your heart. You must labor in singing his praises and meditating upon his goodness and his attributes and sound doctrine. You must labor in fellowshipping with the saints and keeping conversations on track about God. These are the things that are truly good and lawful on the Sabbath day. But also, and this is Jesus' point, there are works of necessity and mercy as well, and we must not neglect or reject them either. Last sub-point, Christ's hatred of sin. Let's see Christ's Hatred of sin in this passage. He has a great hatred for sin. Very great indeed. He even died to eliminate it. Especially the sin of resenting his grace. 
does he hate? We read that Jesus looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. Verse 5. Jesus was a man of intense feeling. Intense feeling. He was a man who felt all emotions in their most perfect fullness. What filled his heart with joy most were those things that were most pleasing to deity. And what filled him with anger most were those things that were most odious to God's holiness. It is truly a remarkable study to examine the emotional life of our Lord Jesus. As J.C. Ryle stated, quote, It is meant to remind us that our Lord Jesus Christ was a man like ourselves, in all things, sin only excepted. Whatever sinless feelings belong to the constitution of man, our Lord partook of and knew by experience. We read that he marveled, that he rejoiced, that he wept, that he loved, and here we read that he felt anger. The Bible tells us that there is an anger that is without sin, an anger that is without sin, a pure and righteous anger against those things that are vile and sinful and debased. God is love. We don't like to talk about God being angry. We like to, as American evangelicals, take Psalm 5-5 and ignore it. We don't like an angry God, a wrathful God, who holds us as a loathsome spider above a flame, to use Jonathan Edwards' words. Because God is love. The Bible does say God is love. Therefore, because he is love, he must thus also be a God full of hatred and anger. Why? Because he loves that which is good, and he hates that which is evil. Just like we do. If you love children, you hate abortion and pedophilia. God, what he loves, he hates anything that goes against it. We too are commanded, like God, to be angry and sin not. Ephesians 4.26 But let us be careful here. Let us be careful here as Christians. For outside of Jesus, a sinless anger is a rare thing indeed. A sinless anger is a rare thing indeed. We must be on our guard. but We must be much on our guard that our anger against sin, against false teaching, against wickedness, etc., is not stained with our own sinful propensities and passions. God alone can be angry and sin not perfectly and at all times. We would do well dear congregation, to cultivate, cultivate, labor, and cultivate more love for that which is good, as well as more hatred for that which is evil, especially our own sin. That should be a thing we hate most because it's closest to us. It is our bosom foe. However, few things are more difficult to rightly achieve than this, anger without sin. Jesus here is angered by the wickedness of the Pharisees. Why? Because they called evil good and good evil. Jesus wished to have mercy on the man. They, on the other hand, 
wished not only to leave the man in his suffering state, but also to kill Jesus for his kindness. Jesus is merciful to sinners. Merciful. Let us follow in his footsteps and do good to all men. Third and last. Believers, responders to duty. Verses 3b and 5b. Jesus says to the withered, the man with the withered hand, stand forth. And then in verse 5, he says also to him, stretch forth thine hand. Although it is only God's prerogative, only God's prerogative to save and to grow men in grace, it is still man's duty to, to believe. It is still man's duty to believe and to labor in his sanctification. In his sanctification. Jesus commands the man to stand forth and to stretch forth his hand. Now, if the man had chosen to not stand forth, to not come forward, he would have received no healing. But notice also this. Had the man not stretched out his hand, something that he couldn't even physically do, he couldn't extend it. It was withered. It was gone. Had he not extended that hand that was impossible to extend, he would have received no healing upon it. He would never have had it restored. How did it work? Spiritually, we are all, all people are like this man. They are utterly unable and unwilling to come to Christ, all men, by nature, and are unable and unwilling to stretch out the arm of faith and lay hold of Jesus Christ. All people are born spiritually dead. Here's what dead people can do. Be dead. They can rot. That's it. That is all. They can do nothing else. So too, those who are dead in trespasses and sins cannot come to God in Christ. Unbelievers cannot believe, ever. They never can believe. And sinners can never repent, ever. Never can. However, by the power of Christ, unbelievers can become believers. And sinners can become saints. In another place, John's Gospel, Jesus says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. John 6.36. In John 6.37, Jesus says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So here we see both the absolute sovereign working of God and the God-ordained responsibility of man. No one can come to Christ except the Father enables him to do so. And yet, all those who act on their responsibility to come to Christ will be eternally received. So how does this apply to us as Christians? Well, dear congregation, even as Christians, we must understand this balance. This balance in our own sanctification, our growth in faith and grace. We will not grow in our faith, in our holiness, in our love for and devotion to God, unless he chooseth to increase it in us. However, we, we are commanded to grow in them even though we can't be the ones that grow in them. 
We are commanded to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Then the Apostle Paul directly after this tells us that it is God which worketh in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. We are commanded to come to God, to grow in our sanctification. Yet, we can do neither of these things, lest God be the author of them. We must leave the fine details of these matters to the mystery of God. Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us that the hidden things belong to God, but those things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Spurgeon often loved to say, friends do not need to be reconciled. And there is no enmity between the Bible's teaching on God's absolute sovereignty and salvation and sanctification and our responsibility to believe and work out our salvation in sanctification. Amen. There's no enmity there. Matthew Henry put it this way, quote, He hath hereby given us a specimen of the cures wrought by his grace upon poor souls. Our hands are spiritually withered. The powers of our souls weakened by sin and disabled for that which is good. The great healing day is the Sabbath and the healing place the synagogue. The healing power is that of Christ. The gospel command is like this recorded here. And the command is rational and just. Though our hands are withered and we cannot of ourselves stretch them forth, we must attempt it. Must, as well as we can, lift them up to God in prayer. Lay hold on Christ and eternal life and employ them in good works. And if we do our endeavor, power goes along with the word of Christ. He effects the cure. Though our hands be withered, yet if we will not offer to stretch them out, it is our own fault that we are not healed. But if we do and are healed, Christ and his power and grace must have all the glory. On judgment day, no one will be able to say that they were damned unjustly. Well, I wasn't saved because God didn't allow me to believe. No one will ever say that. You were not saved because you did not come to Christ and believe upon him. That is why you are not saved. That's what we'll be told. In conclusion, dear congregation, let us study this passage before us and rejoice and rejoice. Our Lord Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the great worker of mercy and the great supplier of all necessities his people need. See here the tender mercy of God displayed in Christ Jesus, his Son. Behold his willingness to heal us broken sinners. Come to Christ daily, dear believer. Find grace to help in thy time of need. Christ is willing and able to help us stretch out the withered hand in faith and lay hold of him. To us sinners, he tells us, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again thank Thee, O Lord, 
for thy word. What an amazing passage we looked at. Please apply it to our hearts. Help us to bring our body, our soul, our mind, our heart to thee. Offer them as a living sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing in thy sight. Fragranced, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, made perfect. We thank thee, Jesus. Amen.